something that I am a little bit better at. That is sharing the gospel. And it's not because I'm proficient at sharing the gospel. It's something that I've prayed for. You know, Paul tells us to covet earnestly spiritual gifts. And I remember reading through the gifts that God has given the church. And as a young man, I prayed, and I prayed earnestly, and I pray it almost daily, that God would give me the gift of evangelism. Now, whether you have the gift or not, no one is exempt from being an evangelist. Paul told Timothy, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And why is it that none of us are exempt from doing the work of an evangelist? Because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses, and he has committed to you and I the ministry of reconciliation. It's as if God was in us beseeching the world, be ye reconciled to God. Why? Because God has made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that you and I might be the righteousness of God in him. Paul said it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He said, therefore, knowing the tear of the Lord, I persuade men. For the love of Christ, it compels me, because I judge thus, that if one man died for all, then all were dead. And those of us who are now alive in Christ are no longer to live for ourselves, but we are to live for the one who has loved us and given himself for us. That's our privilege. God has no other plan. In Acts chapter 10, Cornelius is praying to the one true God in heaven. And an angel appears, and the angel doesn't give him the gospel. He says, go to Joppa and call for a man named Simon Peter, and he will tell you all the things that you must do. God has no other plan. It is people sharing Christ with other people. The church at Antioch, we've been studying it in the book of Acts, the church of Antioch was birthed through evangelism. They went everywhere, scattered, preaching the word. And some of them were of Cyrene and Cyprus. And they evangelized the Hellenists. And the Hellenists received Christ. The ears of Jerusalem were tickled. And they heard that they had received Christ. And so they sent Barnabas. And Barnabas went to seek Saul. And for a year they assembled together and they taught many people. And they were called Christians at Antioch. And it was at Antioch that God stirred their congregation. There were pastors and teachers in that assembly, and the Holy Spirit spoke to the entire church. The Holy Spirit spoke while they were worshiping, while they were fasting, and while they were ministering. That is when God speaks to his people. And what did God say? He said, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work whereunto I have called them. And so the church released two of their best evangelists to go 
and spread the kingdom through the Roman Empire. This morning, I want us to stand as we read Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 40. And then we're just going to go verse by verse and see what it means to be an evangelist for the kingdom of heaven. Acts chapter 13, let's stand together. Verse 26. Men and brethren, sons of the stock of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him or even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. We are witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled. This for us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he says, and spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what he has spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though it were declared to you. Let's pray together. Father, we've got a template. We've got an example for biblical evangelism. Lord, so many times we're tempted to look to human reasoning We're tempted to find quick sales pitches, seeker-friendly church services, all those things to accommodate to man. Father, this morning, help us to understand biblical evangelism as portrayed by your apostle. 
Father, help us to be passionate to seek and to save the lost as Jesus was. Father, help us to understand this passage so that we might apply it in a way that would honor you, that it would engage the lost, and free us from guilt and manipulation. We pray this for Jesus' sake, in his name, amen. I read a lot of books on evangelism, um, a lot of different books, a lot of different perspectives. One of my favorite books is, the title is, One Thing That You Can Do Right Now That You'll Never Be Able to Do in Heaven. I can praise Jesus, I can worship Him, I can serve Him, and I can do all those things in heaven. But the only thing that I can do right now that I'll never be able to do in heaven and that is to talk to lost people about their need for a Savior. The gospel, biblical evangelism, the goal in biblical evangelism, first of all, is to honor God. Just that thought alone frees you and I up from feeling apprehensive, it feel, frees us up from guilt. It frees us up from being intimidated by the person we're evangelizing. The primary goal in evangelism isn't conversion, although that is what God wants to see happen. That's not our responsibility. My goal isn't to see how many people I can convert. I can't convert anyone. God is in charge of conversion. My goal in evangelism is to honor Christ. I am to engage lost people thoughtfully. And by doing that, I am free from manipulating people. And I am free from the guilt that says, you know what? I didn't do it adequately. Sharing the gospel is not a method. I used to think it was a method, and I would go to all these seminars, and I heard so many different methods. Four spiritual laws, God's simple plan of salvation, good news, bad news, all these different little methods. And you know what they were trying to do? They were trying to buttonhole people as if one size fits all. Jesus never did that, did he? Jesus met a woman at a well and he asked her for water. A rich man came to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus gave him the law. Then he told him, go sell everything you have. I would have never done that. I would have said, oh, this guy's eager to hear. Say this prayer and I'll put you down on the dotted line. Jesus called tax collectors to walk away from their money. Jesus went into the house of Zacchaeus, and when he gave away his riches, he said, Today salvation has come to this house. Jesus treated people as individuals. Biblical evangelism doesn't pigeonhole people. It doesn't buttonhole people. One size doesn't fit all. Now, Paul uses a method here, and we're going to look at that. But what God wants to do is so different I think one of the most modern phrases that, that, that really I think is so unbiblical is that is that God has a wonderful plan for your life. As this to say that your plan is 
plan B, and God wants to make you rich, healthy, and wealthy, and wise. God's got this wonderful plan. Well, yes, he does have a wonderful plan. It is a wonderful plan, but that plan includes the cross. That plan includes counting the costs to follow his disciple. That plan includes putting your hands to the plow and not looking back. That plan includes dying to self and living a life surrendered to Jesus. That is his wonderful plan, and that is the paradox. The wonderful plan is when I die to self, Christ comes and lives, and I find what life is all about. Many times we hear modern evangelism as a pill that cures all ills. You've got a bad marriage, you need Jesus. You've got bad finances, you need Jesus. You're not getting along with your boss, you need Jesus. Yes, people do need Jesus, but they need Jesus because they are lost sinners in rebellion to a holy God. And that is their ultimate need. And if we don't share that with them, they're going to miss the true gospel. A.W. Tozer is one of my favorite writers. He wrote over 50 years ago, and yet what he writes is almost as if he was a prophet speaking to contemporary Christianity some 50 years later. This is what he wrote. He called the modern evangelism a new cross. The new cross does not slay the sinner. It merely redirects him. It directs him into a cleaner, jollier, and a self-respected individual. To the self-asserted person, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and be a boastful, proud Christian for the name of Jesus. To the thrill seeker, it says, come and follow me, and I will give you an abundant life filled with thrills. However, the cross is a symbol of of death. Christ calls us to take up our cross and follow him. The cross stands for an abrupt, violent end of a person's life. God saves us when we die to self and we liquidate our own lives. Then he rises us to new life in Christ. Biblical evangelism emphasizes rich theology that transforms the entire being, our emotions, our will, and our mind. Well, where do we begin? Let's look at the Apostle Paul, where he began with people. Paul was marvelous at this. He met people where they were at, and he seemingly found common ground with every audience. Evangelism, first of all, is person to person. Look how he addresses these people that he talks to. Let's go, first of all, to chapter 13 and verse 16. Paul stood up and he motioned with his hands. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. He addresses people where they are at. He's talking to Israelites He's talking to God-fears, people who are in the synagogue, people who are assembled there reading the Scripture every day. In verse 26, he says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham 
And those who fear God, again, he's talking to Jewish people. He's got a Jewish audience that's familiar with Jewish scripture. So that's where he begins. You go over to Acts chapter 17, and it's a completely different Paul. But it's the exact same methodology. He is reaching people where they are at. It's not pigeonhole. It's not buttonholing. It's not one size fits all. Paul met people where they were at, and he became all things to all men, so that by all means he might save some. To the Jew, Paul is becoming very, very Jewish here. But when he goes to Athens, he becomes a Yepiocrian, a Stoic philosopher. And he begins to engage them in their own philosophy. And he quotes their own poets. And he says, for in him you move and live and have your very being. We ought not to think the divine nature is like some statue that you have fashioned. He says, I see that you folks are very religious people. I even observed one of your own inscriptions to the unknown God. Let's talk about him for a minute. When Paul was in Iconium, they were about ready to sacrifice to him. And he tears his clothes. He says, look, I am flesh and blood just like you. I need to meet you where you're at. I am a human being just like you. Don't do these things. God has asked us to turn away from these things. He says, yet God has not left himself without a witness God has not left himself without a witness, and that is the evangelist's goal, is to find how we can reach that people, person, where they're at. Paul says, God has sent sunshine and rain and harvest times, filling your hearts with glad things. And so he meets these idolaters where they're at. He finds common ground. The next thing that we see Paul doing as he addresses this gospel personally to them. He says, to you this message has been sent. He doesn't talk in the third person. He says, this message is to you. Last week I had a privilege just of sitting down at lunch to talk to a young man who had never opened a Bible, never thought about spiritual things. That conversation went on for quite a while. And finally, we started to narrow the conversation down. We started to draw it to the person of Christ. I had a New Testament, so I turned to the Gospel of Luke. I read to him what Jesus said when he opened it up and went into the synagogue. Jesus walked into the synagogue. They handed him the scroll of Isaiah. He looked through the scroll, and he found the place where he wanted to read started reading. He says, I have been sent. I have been sent. That's what God is doing. God is sending people into people's lives. And Paul says, to you, this good news has been sent. How will they call upon him who they not believed? How will they believe in him who they've not heard? How will they hear without a proclaimer, a preacher? And how will they preach unless they are sent? God wants us, people to people, to go with the message. That's the first thing that I want 
us to know about biblical evangelism. It's not cold. It's not indifferent. It's sharing our life with an unbeliever's life. The message is about deliverance. This message of salvation has been sent to you. The second point this morning is that we need to emphasize the supremacy of God through special revelation. We need to emphasize the supremacy of God through special revelation. We need to emphasize the attributes and the character of God. God as sovereign. Even though the Jews knew their scripture, even though they knew the prophets, their ears and eyes were blinded to that message, even though it was read every Sabbath day. Now, let me just take a little divergent here into some theology, why their eyes and ears were blinded. He says, you read this scripture every day, every single Sabbath. You read it over and over, but you didn't even know him and you didn't know the voices of the scripture. You didn't know the voices of the prophet. What was God doing? I think God was judicially blinding the rulers because of their willful and stubborn rejection to his truth generation after generation. And now God is sending his own son. It says in 2 Corinthians that they did not know him, therefore the rulers crucified the prince of glory. For if they had known him, they wouldn't have nailed him to the cross. It was almost as if Jesus came into his own and his own received him not, and he purposely aggravated them and blinded their minds so that they would put him on a cross. This is what God was doing. And so Paul goes through their history. Sovereign God is orchestrating everything. Let's look at how God is orchestrating everything and how Paul emphasizes the sovereignty of God and what God is doing. And even in their hardness, even in their blindness, God was orchestrating that. Verse 17 the God of this people has chosen our fathers. This is God's work of salvation. God is sovereign over salvation. And he chose the fathers to bring the Messiah in through their people. He called and he exalted them when they were strangers in the land of Egypt. He brought them out with an uplifted arm. Now for a time about the 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 400 years, 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterwards they asked for a sign. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as a king, to whom also he gave a testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, the man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior. Can you not see the sovereignty of God in all of this? Modern evangelism 
seems to emphasize how little we can say and still seem a, see a person say a prayer to be converted. God, on the other hand, what He desires for us in sharing the gospel, He wants us to share the gospel extensively, not minimally. Instructing people about Christ and God's character and God's sovereignty. Notice when Paul preaches, it's also not just emphasizing the character of God, the sovereignty of God, but the person of Christ. Before we go to the person of Christ, though, I want to look at the sufficiency of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. This is what Paul uses to bring people to an understanding of who Christ is. Notice how many times the word fulfilled is found in our passage. It's two Greek words that are used. One is pleroma, which means to fill up. The other word is telestai, which means to come to an end, to carry out its finished purpose. But look with me in verse 27. For those who dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which they read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning them. The sufficiency of Scripture, they are being fulfilled through the condemnation of Christ. Now verse 29, look at this verse. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Him, again, the sufficiency of Scripture, all was fulfilled concerning Him. One more verse. Verse 32, and when we declared the glad tidings, that promise which God made to his fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children. The fulfillment of all the Old Testament, the fulfillment of all scripture is found in the person of Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is we can use the entire Bible for evangelism. Jesus had no New Testament. He was the living New Testament, wasn't he? When Paul went into this synagogue, he has no New Testament to share with them. He has all the prophets and all the voices of the Old Testament. All of Scripture is consummated in the person of Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of Scripture is Jesus. Here's the beautiful thing. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says this at the start of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, don't think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. It is all about me. We can use all of the Bible, all of its sufficiency to describe and to bring people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, unless one jot or tittle will pass from the law until all of it is fulfilled. He said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, he said, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. What are the scriptures doing? Jesus said, the scriptures are testifying about me. So the other thing about biblical evangelism, we stress the attributes of God but we also share with them the sufficiency of Scripture to bring people to salvation. The Bible alone is enough. When Paul was in Corinth, we often think of him as this great evangelist that never stammered, never stumbled with his words, always found the right, right word at the right time. 
But that's not what he says. He says that I was with you with much fear. I was with you with much trembling. My preaching wasn't with enticing words of man's wisdom. This is why. So your faith doesn't rest in the wisdom of man, but your faith rests in the power of God. The message of the cross is foolishness to the world. The Jews are requiring signs. The Greeks are looking after wisdom. But to those of us who believe, the message of the cross is the power of God in, unto salvation. The gospel is completely sufficient to save. It is the fulfillment of everything that God is doing through the person of Christ. We looked at their willful ignorance. Another thing that biblical evangelism is all about, biblical evangelism is, after all, persuading people. Now, it's not our job to convict of sin, but we're to use reason and we're to use logic and we're to bring people to the point of a decision. This may be a hard thing to do in evangelism. We may feel like we're going to be rejected. We may feel like we're going to offend people. But until we've done that, we've not done full biblical evangelism. Paul uses logic here. He uses the Psalms. He uses what was written. Things that were familiar with them. The first Psalm that he quotes, Psalm chapter 2, he says, You are my son, Today I have begotten you. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean, today I have begotten you? Begotten used here is a figurative term. It means to bring life into something that was dead. Paul uses it figuratively all the time. Jesus uses it figuratively. That which is born or begotten of the flesh is flesh. That which is born or begotten of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to you, you must be begotten, you must be born again. Something that is dead must be brought into life. You and I have been begotten again, not by corruptible seed, but by incorruptible seed, by the Word of God that lives and abides forever. So when Paul says, you are my son... Today I have begotten you, I've taken your dead body, and I've declared you to be alive to the world. The resurrection is the affirmation that all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ. He has been declared the Son of God with power. By the Spirit of holiness... Through the resurrection from the dead. What makes Christ so unique? What makes him in a different category from every other religious leader? Christ alone raised himself from the dead. God the Father raised him from the dead. And the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. The triune God brought Christ alive from the grave. The resurrection. What a sign that points people to the hope of salvation. When Jesus walked into the temple, that very first Passover when he began his public ministry, that must have been an amazing Sabbath day. I don't know if it was a Sabbath, but anyway, it was the Passover season. There's tables, there's money changers, there's animals. 
People are changing their money and the guys who are exchanging are getting rich off this little enterprise. And Jesus walks in and he starts dumping tables over. They must have thought, who is this madman? Somebody said, this is a carpenter from the city of Nazareth. We know what his disciples thought. Could anything good have come out of Nazareth? And here he is overturning the tables. He says, who do you think you are? What gives you the right to do this? Show us a sign, Jesus. Jesus, I'll give you the ultimate sign. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll raise it again. The disciples didn't understand that until after the resurrection. And we are told here that he appeared to them for many days. And here's the wonderful thing. The story of the resurrection isn't like the game telephone. It wasn't something that they said, well, Jesus got crucified. And the next generation said, yeah, it was a horrible event, but he promised that he was going to give us better life. And then about 50 years later, they said, oh, yeah, and, and, and in fact, we saw his body. No, the resurrection was a story that began immediately after his death. He was seen by over 50 brethren, 500 brethren, excuse me, all at one time. And Paul is writing that in 55 A.D., he says, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That's an Aramaic creed. I received and I delivered to you. That's a form of a creed. And he's relating to them something he had already declared to them. He was in Corinth in 52 A.D. We know that because Gallio was the governor of Achaia when Paul was in Corinth. And he says, I am taking to you something that was original with the eyewitness apostles, Paul said, I was there on the road of Damascus and I have seen him. Peter says this, we have not followed cunning the divine's fables when we made known to you the excellency and the glory of our Lord Jesus, but I was an eyewitness of him. I saw him when I heard the voice. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. The resurrection. Point people to the resurrection. It is the only hope for forgiveness of sin, and it is the only hope for justification. Paul here emphasizes grace that is found because of the resurrection of Jesus, and Paul uses logic. He uses reasoning to bring his audience to an understanding of who Christ is and what Christ has done. It couldn't have been David, right? His grave is still here. His sepulcher is still in Jerusalem. And you can find his bones. The one who he made this promise to, his body saw no corruption. It is Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Now, why do you and I need grace? Point people to the law so they understand grace. Through Christ, I preach to you the forgiveness of sins and everything that you can't be justified by the law of Moses, you can be justified by the person of Christ. What does the law demand? The law demands complete obedience. Do you not hear what the law says? Those who live by the law must obey all of the law. 
The law was not given to produce righteousness. The law was given so that every mouth is stopped and the whole world might be guilty before God. Now, when we use logic and we use reason and we explain grace, we also must be, give people a sober warning. Look what Paul does at the end of this message. Verse 39, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things, which he cannot be justified, declared righteous by the law of Moses. Here's the warning. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets comes upon you. Behold, you despisers. Marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work by which by no means you will believe, though it were declared to you. Paul wasn't worried about results. Paul didn't say, say this little prayer with me and you'll become a Christian and everything will be bliss for you. He warned them, beware, take account of what I am preaching to you. The law demands obedience. Faith in Christ's merit often is complete forgiveness. The sober warning. Paul's goal wasn't here to see results. In fact, we're told that the Jews came back the next Sabbath day and they saw the whole city coming to hear, and they were so angry that they started a riot. Paul looks at those Jews and he says, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to shake the dust off of my feet. Because it's not about numbers. It's not about how many people I convert. The gospel is about, first of all, honoring God. Engaging people in a meaningful message. Those that honored the gospel believed and glorified the message. And they were filled with joy and filled with the Holy Spirit. Evangelism that's done biblically frees you and I from guilt and it frees you and I from manipulation. So let's just kind of go over it again. What is biblical evangelism and how do we do it? First of all, the most important thing that I can't stress more than anything else is it's a person to person. You might not have all the answers. You might feel like you're making a mess of things. You might feel like I'm so inadequate but God will use people to people. By becoming all things to all people, by all means you might save some. I remember reading one of the second books that I read on personal evangelism. I was very, very young in ministry and felt so, so inept at sharing the gospel. And I grabbed this book. Well, actually it was given to me by a navigator, a missionary with navigators. And I remember reading the introduction and it brought such a solace to me. And in the introduction, he says, you are not the plan of salvation, Jesus is. He went about to tell this story. He was on an airplane. And he sat down and he just wanted to talk to the person next to him. Have you ever been that way? I, I usually pray, God, help they're asleep. <laughs> I just, you know, because I, I know I'm supposed to witness. I know, but, you know, once I open my mouth, it starts to come. You know, it, once I get over my fears, it, but 
anyway, getting back to the, to the book, he's praying for this woman next to him. They're trying and trying desperately. He's trying to maneuver this conversation. And finally, she notices his wedding ring. And she makes some comments about him traveling and about temptation of men traveling because he's traveling all over the world. He's going to South America. And he begins to tell, he says, oh, finally, the, we're about, the plane's about ready to land. And he's trying to wrap the gospel up as quick as he can and just give her tidbits so that she can say this prayer. And it just all unravels and it falls apart for him. He gets off the plane feeling such a failure. Well, he went on to learn about sharing his faith in a natural way and how God wants to use him. And he says at that end of that paragraph, he says, I, I realized then that I'm not the plan of salvation. And the story has a wonderful ending. He goes to the same city in South America 10 years later to give a seminar on evangelism to the same church that he spoke at 10 years before. After he gets done speaking, a woman comes up to him and says, sir, do you know who I am? He says, ma'am, I have no idea. She says, you are the guy that was fumbling and stumbling all over yourself talking about your wedding ring. She goes, I started to think about that. I started thinking about my husband and how, how I would love for he and I to have that same kind of relationship. But I remember what you said. You said that Jesus is the unbroken Savior who loves me no matter what I've done. Jesus, I never forgot that. And I started seeking out to know who this Jesus was. The most important thing that Paul did with these people is he resonated with them as someone who they could identify with. He calls them brethren. He calls them the seed of Abraham. He says, you who are fellow God worshipers, to us, I'm just as needy as you are. To us, this salvation is met. We need to emphasize God's sovereignty. We need to emphasize the sufficiency of Scripture. We need to emphasize the person of Christ and his resurrection. Lastly, we need to persuade people with logic and reason to make a decision for Christ. Those are simple things that I think every one of us can do. Let's close with prayer. Father, none of us are born natural evangelists. Lord, like anything else, it comes with hard work. It comes with practice. But it starts, Father, with a burden and a desire to see people saved. Father, I thank you today that Soren showed us this little video clip of a young orphan girl opening up a box of presents, but more importantly, hearing about God's indescribable gift. Father, there is more rejoicing in heaven 
over one sinner who repents than over the 90 and 9 who need no repentance. Father, help us today to be liberated and freed from thinking that we have to do the work to see people saved. God, all we have to do is befriend them. We have to point them to you and your sufficiency and your word and the power of your resurrection, that Christ alone can offer forgiveness, his uniqueness. We need to share with them that the law can save no one and that we can be freely justified. And then we need to encourage them to make a decision for Jesus. God, help us. Help us, Father, to see your kingdom come through sharing the message of your kingdom with lost people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.